0: Well, it is a joy to get to be with you today. Um, nice of Fritz to choose uh, the one Sunday where I lose an hour to drive for over from Lexington to come preach. Uh, very convenient on his part. You know, the, the, the Sunday, pastors will tell you, the Sunday that they dread the most is this one. Not only do they lose sleep, but you're sleepy, everybody's sleepy. So thank you, Fritz, for giving me. This Sunday in particular, uh, now he's been actually trying to get me to come be with you for a while now, but in my former role as a senior pastor of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church in Lexington, just didn't have the space to do that. But now that um, I've stepped off into a new adventure, uh, part of my job description uh, as director of Christ for Kentucky is is traveling the state and preaching a little bit more. So honored to be with you. Uh, hopefully it will not be the last time I get to be with you. Um... John 13, Fritz, I I believe you all are entering into um, a series on the upper room. If that's not true, don't quote me there, but I think that's what he said, because he did ask me to pick up here at the beginning of John 13. So let me read the passage for us and pray, and then we will jump in. So this is uh, John 13, 1 through 11. I will be preaching from the ESV, but I saw in your church uh, Bibles there, uh, your pew Bibles, that you have NIV. So let me read it from what you have, but just... Uh, when I get into my sermon, I'll be using the ESV. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God as was returning to God. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word, which is infallible, but we do recognize that both uh, the preacher and the hearers this morning are fallible. So would you take your word, which is perfect, and use my imperfect efforts to bring about your work? Lord, it's always uh, difficult in some ways to preach um, in a community that I'm unfamiliar with, Uh, But the good news is that you know every single person here. You know their stories. You know their struggles. You know their sins. You know their pain. You know their circumstances. You know them better than they know themselves. And so you have them here for a reason. Would your purposes be accomplished through the preaching of your word? I pray that we would be different because we came to church this morning. We heard from you and that your spirit spoke to us, and we would be changed. And so we trust you with the next few minutes together as we open your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So today is a big life, big day in the life of our great commonwealth, and approximately, I guess, seven hours, brackets, are going to be uh, released, and March Madness will officially begin. Um, that's an all-consuming event for our state. I know Louisville, you know, I love you all. The rest of us don't really know what to do with you all. Um, I know there's a lot of transient things, so some of you move into Kentucky and don't really know what to do with the Kentucky thing, and then of course there's Louisville fans maybe here. Um, I'm sorry uh, for your season. Sorry, not sorry for your season. so I don't really know how to talk about this here, but for the rest of the state, this madness obviously will be an all-consuming affair. And certainly our household is uh, no exception. I am a born and raised Kentuckian, uh, discipled from birth to love the Kentucky Wildcats. I've done the same with my four sons. My wife is from Texas. Uh, she doesn't get it. Uh, she is annoyed by it. I often hear, how is it possible for... Uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old college students trying to get a ball to go through a metal circle to dictate the ethos of our home. Um, But it is what it is. It sends us into heights of joy and depths of despair and all that stuff. And I think she does have a point, but it is what it is. And if you follow Kentucky basketball this year, then you know that perhaps more than any other season in its history, it's kind of been a roller coaster of emotions, uh, terrible losses, And then a great win, so back and forth and back and forth. And what this has led to is this little maddening formula in our house. And I'll only preface this with I'm a pastor. Um, I'm a theologian who believes in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, which means I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. Um, And so um, my sons and I have been trying to crack the code of this season, so to speak. Uh, So we we won a big game and we were sitting a certain way on the couch, so let's make sure we sit that way going forward. Uh, We lost a big game and we had noticed that we had popcorn for that one, so no more popcorn the rest of the season. Our latest one is uh, on my wife. She was watching the game Friday night with us and we were winning. She went to bed. We ended up losing, so she has to watch the games the rest of the tournament. She's (laughs) Doubt she's going to comply with that. You get it, I freely admit it's all crazy, but if you are a sports fanatic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, do you know what's really going on behind those ridiculous sports superstitions? It's our feeble way to contribute something. We have these teams that we want so badly to win, and yet we are completely helpless and out of control when it comes to the outcomes of the games. So, we contrive, silly ways that in our mind will contribute, even though it's ridiculous to think that we can ever contribute. And this is actually a helpful way to imagine how a lot of Christians approach their salvation. Um, This is a good way to help us understand what is behind religious self-righteousness. We want so badly for our salvation to be true and we just can't accept that we are helpless and out of control when it comes to its success. And so what we do is we get superstitious with our salvation. We contrive ways to contribute something, anything to its success. Any way that we can participate, somehow that we can have a measure of control, somehow we can add something to the success of our salvation. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to confront that tendency within all of us. He is going to say, I have to do all the work. I can't let you do any of the work if salvation is ever going to work. Jesus does it all. You contribute nothing. And I want to explore that in two ways from our passage. We're going to see the Savior who serves, and then I'm going to ask you the question, will you let... ...the Savior serve. So let's first watch a Savior who serves. Verse 1 again. Before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world... ...to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world... ...he loved them to the end. during supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him... ...Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands... ...and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When we think about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, we typically think about the, the scandal of the story is the grossness of the story. Maybe... Um, Maybe you've heard a sermon on this passage before and a preacher has talked about how in the ancient world they wore sandals on dirt roads and so everybody's feet were nasty. But Jesus loves us so much that he would even wash our nasty feet. Yes, that is true. It definitely was gross. But the scandal of this scene has less to do with the filth of the act as much as it is the position of the act. Notice how detailed John is here in describing things what Jesus was wearing, the towel, the basin, and so forth. What he's doing is he is describing a picture of Jesus that in the ancient world would immediately be recognized, but is tougher for us to see. What Jesus is intentionally doing here is taking on the position of a household slave. Slavery uh, was common in the ancient world, and slaves were certainly looked down as the lowliest of society. But even among slaves there were deeper levels of shame. For example, there was a difference between a Jewish slave and a Gentile slave. And some duties were viewed as so lowly that only Gentile slaves would perform them. And foot washing was one of those. And these Gentile slaves had a uniform, a very shameful outfit they would wear. Only their underwear with a towel tied around their waist. So return to verse 3. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. King Jesus has stripped down to his underwear and has taken the position of a lowly household Gentile slave. This is unfathomable, which explains Peter's reaction. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, who can fault Peter, right? Right? That is completely unbecoming of the one that that Peter refers to as Lord. Verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. We're going to return to that statement because it's an important one to the passage, but for now, what we see here is Jesus saying, I completely understand that you don't understand this, Peter. But eventually, this will make sense. The problem, however is that Peter's surprise turns into a protest. Jesus says, listen, I know you don't understand, but you're going to understand, but Peter won't relent. Verse 8, he said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, on the surface, this seems like the right thing to say. You shall never wash my feet. So noble, so honorable, so virtuous, so... Proud. What's really going on when being served makes us feel uncomfortable? What's really going on when it's easier for us to give than to receive? What's really going on when we refuse help and always want to be the ones who are helping? What's really going on when it would be far easier for us to wash the feet of Jesus? ...than to have our feet washed by Jesus. What's going on is our pride. Peter couldn't articulate it... ...but hidden behind his well-meaning protest... ...is a deep-seated arrogance and self-reliance. Peter doesn't want to need Jesus' service. He wants Jesus to need his service. But that's not the way things are. Peter needs Jesus... Jesus needs nobody, and Jesus is uncompromising in that relational arrangement. Look at what he says next. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In the Greek, those are some of the strongest words that we will ever hear from Jesus. If I don't wash your feet, then you have no share with me. If you are going to have a relationship with Jesus then it's going to be on his terms. And his terms are him kneeling at your feet, serving you and not the other way around. So let me state this as clearly as he is stating it in the passage. Jesus will not have a relationship with you if you will not let him serve you. And here's why. He refuses to allow Peter or any of us to hijack his gospel and turn it into just another run-of-the-mill religion. Religions at their core are very simple. They are systems that provide humanity a way to serve God, to proverbially wash the feet of God, so to speak. And that's why religion seems so natural and right to us. But the problem is that what is right and natural to us is self-centeredness and pride. So we should be very skeptical of religious concepts that make sense to us because they are probably just baptizing our own pride and self-reliance. But then comes Jesus with this crazy gospel that makes no sense to our natural way of being, but this is because it is the gospel of his kingdom that makes no sense to our natural way of being. If we serve God, religiously speaking, who is the hero of that story? You or God? It is you. ...because you performed for God. But Jesus proclaims a kingdom... ...where God is the hero, not you. If we serve God... ...who is in need? You or God? Well, God, because He needs your service. But Jesus proclaimed a kingdom... ...where we are needy... ...and God is the provider. If we religiously serve God... ...who is acceptable? The self-righteous or the sinners? The self-righteous, because they have proven themselves... ...worthy and acceptable... But Jesus proclaimed a kingdom where sinners are welcomed and the self-righteous are excluded. If we serve God, who is exalted and who is humbled? The strong are exalted by their ability to perform and the weak are humbled by their inability to perform. But Jesus proclaims a kingdom where the proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. And so Jesus in this last moments with his disciples before he goes to the cross is unwavering with these kingdom commitments In the most vivid way, he flips the natural order of religion and demands his disciples allow him to wash their feet like a household. What he's doing is he is preparing them for Calvary. If they can't accept Jesus on his knees, then how will they ever accept Jesus on a cross? If they can't handle Jesus kneeling to wash their feet, then how will they ever handle the Jesus bleeding to wash their sins? So in the name of the gospel and in defiance of religion, Jesus says, it must be this way. Peter, you have to let me wash your feet or you cannot have me. And he is saying the same to you this morning. Jesus is here to make us all as uncomfortable as Peter is in this passage. Religion is comfortable. Jesus is not. So let this, let, let's go here with application having seen this Savior who serves, let me now ask the question of all questions. Will you let the Savior serve? Do not so easily dismiss this question and say yes, because you know that's the right answer. It's not as easy as you think. So let me ask some practical diagnostic questions that I think will show you how difficult this gospel concept is for us to accept. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus... Do you constantly swing between two poles of acceptance and rejection based upon your service? On a good day of service, you feel accepted. You know, a day you wake up early, you uh, read the scriptures, you pray, you go throughout your day with the relative measure of self-discipline and not falling into any big sins, and I feel accepted by Jesus. And then on the day where I sleep in and neglect the spiritual disciplines and let my temper get the best of me and fall into sin, I feel rejected by Jesus. If so, then you're relating to Jesus as if you were the one who needs to wash his feet. The only way out of the maddening cycle of acceptance, rejection, acceptance, rejection is to let him serve you. He didn't come to have you serve him. He came to serve you. So why are you letting your service determine the terms of your relationship? How about this? Are you constantly comparing yourself to others? If so, then you are relating to Jesus as if you are the one who needs to serve Him, to wash His feet, not the other way around. You see, if we have to serve Jesus, then other followers of Jesus become competition that you have to outperform. Therefore, you are ever vigilant in where you stand in the game. How am I? as a marriage compared to the other marriages in this room? How was I? How am I as a parent compared to the other parents and kids in this room? How am I in my spiritual disciplines compared to everybody else in this community? That game that we all play is rooted in this notion that this all depends upon my ability to serve. Who's serving better than you? Who are you serving better than? The only way out of that competition game is to just let Jesus serve you. Who cares where you stand in comparison to others? We all need Him to serve us, so there's nothing to compare. How about this question? Do you hate yourself? Are you riddled with self-loathing and self-condemnation? If so, then you are relating to Jesus as if you are the one who needs to wash His feet. You see, if we have to serve Jesus... ...like this, then deep down underneath the charade of our performance... ...is this nagging truth that we are unfaithful servants. Even our best service is tainted by impure motives and we know it. So our service turns into this introspective nightmare... ...constantly evaluating our service, constantly hating what we find. Well, the only way out of your self-hatred is to let Jesus serve you. To see yourself as Jesus sees you, beloved so beloved that if he were here this morning, the only thing he would ask you to do for him is to take off your shoes so that he might wash your feet. When you see yourself as the one Jesus gladly came to serve, how can you hate yourself? Now listen, I know what you may want to say to all of these questions. Well, what about service? Are we not servants of Jesus called to serve our master? Well, that's another good question to ask. Do you serve begrudgingly out of guilt and fear instead of joy and love? If so, then you are relating to Jesus as if you are the one who needs to wash his feet. In that arrangement, you don't get to serve. You have to serve. And in this way, service becomes a slave master until, rather, until you basically begrudgingly get tired of it and give up rather than a free and delightful response to Jesus. The only way to truly serve Jesus is to first let Jesus serve you. So, now do you see how difficult this question is for all of us? We naturally want to do what, Jesus, what Peter does in his passage and resist, which is okay. It is okay if, and here's the key to the passage, if we will also respond like Peter when Jesus confronts him. When he says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part of me. Does that immediately lead you to verse 9? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. How lovely is that response? In the Gospels, Peter drives us crazy with brash arrogance and then melts our hearts with his humble repentance. It's okay to be like Peter in the arrogant protest. As long as when Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have none of me, you respond like Peter says, then just wash all of me. Our stubborn, prideful resistance is okay as long as when Jesus confronts you with this news, you say, at the prospects of losing my Savior, then not just my feet, but all of me. So, will you let the Savior serve? Admittedly, we struggle with that question. But if to have Jesus, we must let him serve, then those who belong to Jesus say not just my feet but my whole body. That's not everyone though. And that's the stern warning of the passage. Continue on verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed has no need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, that's a little parenthesis here. Jesus is taking this illustration even further to make an important point to Peter. It's the justification, sanctification, tension of our salvation. He is saying, those who bathe have no need to wash again because you are already clean. You don't get out of the shower and then get back into the shower because you are clean except your feet. For their culture, that is why they had to continually wash throughout the day. So for us, it would be akin to hand washing. Take a shower in the morning, you are clean, but throughout the day we keep washing our hands. And the point is that there is both a definitive cleanliness and a continual cleansing. That's our salvation. Justification. Jesus cleans us definitively. Sanctification. Jesus continually cleanses us. So every week, in your worship, when you do your confession of sin and hear the assurance of pardon, that's not justification. You are clean. But we do need to continue to let him wash our feet, so to speak. So Jesus said to Peter, even though I am going to have to keep washing your feet, you are clean. But, then the warning I was speaking of in verse 10, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And, of course, he is speaking of Judas here, as the text says. It says that Jesus said that because he knew who would betray him. Now, what is so interesting is that both Peter and, Jewish, and, and Judas are about to betray him. Judas, obviously, is the more infamous one who betrayed him with a kiss, but Peter's about to say three times, I don't know that man. I renounce Jesus. What a... What a cowardly form of betrayal. So they're both about to betray Jesus, but there is a difference. Candidly speaking, an eternal difference. Peter is the type of betrayer who casts himself wholly upon Jesus, saying, Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash all of me. Do you know what Judas does with his betrayal? He hides, he pretends, he covers up, he denies. And when the consequences of his actions catch up to him, he doesn't repent and cast himself upon Jesus saying, cleanse me. He tries to cover up his mistake, fix his wrong, clean up his mess. The one thing he will not do, even unto taking his own life, is cast himself upon the mercy of Christ and say, wash me, Savior. Ironically, the one who will soon get busy trying to clean up the mess that he created is the one Jesus says is not clean. And that is the difference. Both Peter and Judas are prideful men. Both Peter and Judas are colossal failures. Both Peter and Judas will betray Jesus, but Peter relents and lets Jesus serve him. Judas would rather die in his own arrogance than to let Jesus serve him. And so the famous foot washing ceremony ends with this haunting warning. Not all of you are clean. But the irony of the passage is that the one who's arguing with Jesus is the clean one. And the one hiding from Jesus is unclean. So let's close with this. Are you clean? The answer is that if you are trying to clean yourself then you are not clean. The application for you to wrestle with is that you can keep on trying to clean yourself up through religious hiding, pretending, justifying, deflecting, blaming, performing. But I want you to know that those labors are in vain. If you want to go try and find a way to clean yourself up without letting Jesus cleanse you, good luck. You'll be the first. But if not, If you, like Peter, get confronted with the news, the sober news that I've given you by saying, not just my feet, but all of me, then I can say to you definitively and as certain as Jesus said to Peter in this passage, beloved, you are clean. Your application is to relax. To relax. You are clean. It is really true. Jesus really has cleansed you. You really are forgiven. Relax and enjoy the service of Jesus, knowing that his service is perfectly effectual. That's the other thing with these stupid sports superstitions. We have them because victory is so fragile. Kentucky's played this tournament nearly 100 times and only won eight of them. Victory is so elusive. We know it. We can feel it. So i got to figure out something to do. Christian, when it comes to Jesus, you don't have something to do. It is done. To quote him, it is finished. He cannot lose. He will not lose. He has triumphed over your sin, and you are forever clean. You can let him serve you because his service is perfect. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would all cast ourselves upon you and say, wash us, cleanse us. We give up the charade. We give up the performance. All we know to do is to accept the service of Jesus, that it is true, that it is perfect, that it is factual. If there are any here who are hiding, pretending, fighting, in religious self-righteousness, unable to admit their wrongs and confess their sins, constantly blaming, constantly deflecting. I pray they would give the game up and just cast themselves upon Jesus. But let all of us be reminded this day, not only have you washed our feet, you have washed our sins away. Thank you, Jesus. May we all leave here free in your service. We bless you. Receive now our praise as we sing to you. In your name we pray, amen.